First Samuel chapter two. Last week in chapter one, as we began the book of First Samuel, it opened on a certain man named Elkanah. But the story quickly shifted, and we realized that uh, the center of the narrative actually was one of Elkanah's wives named Hannah. And the big problem with Hannah was that she had no children. And to make matters worse, Elkanah had another wife who did have children. And this woman would vex and embarrass and harass Hannah. Elkanah may love you the most, but the Lord obviously does not. Just look at your life. If the Lord really loved you, wouldn't you have children? Year after year, Hannah would wear this shame and guilt as they would travel to Jerusalem to worship the Lord at the house of the Lord. Until she finally reached a breaking point. One night after dinner, she slips away. And in the darkness of the evening, she absconds to the courtyard of the house of God. Falling to her knees and tears just streaming down her face, she prayed and prayed and prayed and everything that she had stored up in her heart, she poured out to the Lord. And in chapter 1, we didn't get to hear anything that she said. We just know she continued in her prayers. Verse, one, uh, verse 13 of chapter 1 told us, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. And I think perhaps the thing we're supposed to learn from chapter 1 about prayer is that it wasn't the words of Hannah that moved the Lord to answer her desperate plea. It was Hannah's heart. She asked the Lord for a son. We know that much because she told the priest after the fact, I've asked the Lord for a son. I'm sorry, let me backtrack. We did get to hear some of her words. That, uh, I apologize for that. In verse 11, she tells us what she's asking for. I apologize. We get a little, uh, little snapshot of, of her prayer, and she does, uh, she does ask the Lord for a son there. But it's not a special formula that she uses. It's not that she says all the words in the right order. It's not that she recites some magical incantation. The, the reason that the Lord gave her a son is not because of the words that are pouring out of her mouth and she just says them in just the right order. It's the heart that those words are pouring out of. This morning we get kind of an expanded view of Hannah's prayer life. So we got a little snapshot of it back there in chapter 1 verse 11. Just a few sentences. Chapter 2 is Hannah's prayer. It just expands and we get to see her heart is open wide. And we watch as she prays to the Lord. She returns to the house of the Lord. She gives her son, Samuel, as she, as she promised, she offers him to be a servant in the house of the Lord forever. This time she prays and she prays and we get to hear the whole thing. But as we listen, I want us to consider the heart. Think about the heart of Hannah that these words are coming from. 
So let's stand together as we join Hannah in her prayer to the Lord. Chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by, his, by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and, and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the power of His anointed. Amen. You may be seated. In my experience, one of the biggest fears in many Christians' lives is the fear of praying in public. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but I would bet that there are a lot in here who have, that's one of your biggest fears is if anyone were to call on you to pray in front of other people, what would I say? What if I mess up? What if I say the wrong thing? I wouldn't know where to start. Imagine if you were Hannah, and if you knew that your prayer was going to be recorded for all believers of all times to sit down and read and scrutinize. Imagine the fear and trembling that might grip you then. Not just praying in front of four or forty, but in front of every believer who has ever existed. But I think this fear and this dread of praying in front of other people comes from a wrong understanding of prayer because we think that prayer starts with what we say. Prayer starts with our mouths. And Hannah's example shows us that prayer is not first and foremost about saying the right words. Her prayer begins, verse 1, my heart. Prayer Originates. Prayer starts in the heart. Prayer, we saw in chapter 1, is about pouring out your heart to the Lord. You see, if our heart is right, then the words will take care of themselves. 
So as we listen to Hannah's prayer together, we have to let the words trace their way back to the heart, back to our hearts. And I think as we look on at Hannah's prayer and we listen to her pray, it encourages our hearts in five very simple ways. And I think if our heart begins to do these things, then we'll find our prayers will take care of themselves. Number one, boast in the Lord. Our hearts need to begin by boasting in the Lord. Listen again to verse one. My heart exults, boasts, brags in the Lord. This is a choice that Hannah is making in her heart. It's volitional. It's it's an act of the will. We have to direct and command our hearts to boast in the Lord. Because whether we realize it or not, the things that our hearts boast in become our gods. Take a moment and reflect on your life. Think about this past week. The general ebb and flow of the circumstances of your life. When things go well, who do you give credit to? Yourself? Is it the willful choice of your heart when things go well and things begin to swell up in your life that you boast and brag about what the Lord has done? Or do you brag about other things, your own abilities, your possessions, your success. And you might think, but I, don't, I never actually say those things out loud. It just sometimes it's just there in my heart. Isn't that beside the point? If prayers pour forth out of the overflow of your heart, whatever is in your heart is going to come out. If our hearts are filled with prideful boasting in ourselves or boasting in any other God besides the Lord, we cannot be surprised when our prayers are a mess. Or they don't happen at all. But if the desire of our heart and our every exaltation and our every victory is not to us but to your name be the glory, then our hearts are always going to be ready to pray. Because whenever we do succeed, whenever we are exalted, whenever we do triumph over our enemies, whenever we do experience victory over sin, whenever we do begin to see more and more evidence of righteousness in our lives, whenever our homes are not characterized by hate and fighting and jealousy, but peace, joy, and hope, whenever we do see that we're honest and diligent in our workplaces, whenever we are hardworking in our school and our studies, We know it's not because we are great, but because we ourselves have been saved by a great Lord. Hannah says, because I rejoice in your salvation. That's why I brag, that's why I boast, that's why I exult. Because of your, O Lord, salvation. Our hearts boast in the Lord because we realize that everything we have experienced, past, present, and future is because of the saving work of the Lord. Before we move on to the second point, 
have to stop and ask a question. Could it be that you don't know how to pray because you have never experienced the salvation of the Lord? That's what gets Hannah's heart going. Because of your salvation. And if you can't seem to get your heart going in prayer, is it because you haven't experienced that work in your life? Do you know that God has orchestrated all of history to send His Son to live a perfect life and to die on a cross for a sinner like you? So that when you reach your lowest point and realize that you are just dust and deserve to stay dust forever, that you've cried out to God out of your sin and said, please have mercy on me, and you've trusted that Jesus' death was not just some accident, but it was an orchestrated event for the forgiveness of your sins once and forever, and that Jesus has been raised to justify you in the presence of God forevermore? Have you come to experience the salvation of the Lord? Because if you have... You will boast in it. No amount of saying the right words, of reciting Hail Marys, or reciting the Lord's Prayer, or even reciting the sinner's prayer will save you. But a heart that believes in Jesus Christ, that is where salvation comes. And it's from a heart that's experienced salvation That's where the prayers begin to pour forth. You may not even be able to put into words, but your heart knows, I need that. That salvation is what I need. Boast in the Lord. Secondly, Hannah's prayer encourages us, secondly, to know the Lord. Your heart needs to boast in the Lord. Your heart needs to know the Lord. When our heart knows the Lord, knows His attributes, knows His character, knows His traits, His excellencies, the truths about who God is move our hearts to pray. Listen to verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah's heart knows these three truths about God. She knows His holiness. She knows His divinity. She knows His faithfulness. And she praises Him for all of these things. She says, there is none holy like the Lord. He is completely set apart. Millard Erickson writes, God is untouched and unstained by the evil of this world. In fact, do you know that the Lord is so holy that the things that He touches become holy and are permeated with purity And clarity. Do you remember in the story when Jesus comes and he is walking around and he's touching lepers? And every person who's touched a leper in the history of the world becomes unclean. Jesus reaches out and touches lepers, and what happens? He doesn't become stained. His holiness makes them pure. There is none holy like the Lord, He's divine. Hannah, in the middle of verse 2, says, There is none besides you. It's not that the Lord is one God among many gods. There is only one. 
It's not that there's, you know, this pantheon of gods and, and, and our Lord is, is the supreme deity and there's other, you know, lesser deities out there that other people worship. No, no, no. She says, there is none besides you. Moses tells the people in Deuteronomy, to you, O Israel, it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is none besides him. Know therefore and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other. Every other being in this universe had a beginning, but Genesis 1-1 begins, in the beginning, God. He was there. Everything that exists is dependent upon the Creator for its existence, but Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham existed, I am. Allah is not God. Buddha is not God. Brahman is not God. The kings of this world are not God. The culture is not God. You and I are not God. There is only one. The Lord, Yahweh, whose name means I am. Hannah's heart knows the divinity of the Lord. He's the only God. And then thirdly, she knows that he is faithful. There is no rock like our God. You go read the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. Moses wrote an entire song dedicated to this attribute of the Lord. He is the rock. He is faithful. Here's a taste. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness. And without iniquity, just and upright is he. He is a refuge. He is an unshaken shelter for His people. He is trustworthy. He is reliable. He is faithful. Paul says, let God be true, though every man were a liar. Our hearts need to know the Lord. Spend time in His Word. Spend time in His world. Paul says in Romans 1, that all the invisible attributes of God, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So whether you look in His Word or His world, you are going to know the Lord. You're going to see His attributes and all their beauty and excellence. And your heart will be moved to pray. Number three, bow before the Lord. We have to bow before the Lord in our hearts. Verse 3 cautions us that the Lord is the one who weighs us in His scales. Talk no, more proud, uh, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. When we know the Lord and we recognize the truth that this excellent, exalted, glorious God who is the only God and who is a rock, that He's going to be the one who is going to weigh our actions on His scales of justice. It forces us to put a hand over our mouths. Any temptation we might have to speak with arrogance or pride is stopped. And it forces our hearts to bow before the Lord. Listen to how he meets out his justice. Verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, 
but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Is this good news to you? I think it depends on which category you consider yourself to be in. Do you normally think of yourself as being the mighty one? As being the one who's filled with all kinds of worldly success? As being the one whose life is just so fruitful in every way? The perfect family, the perfect career, the perfect house, possessions, popularity. Is that how you see yourself? Or do you know in the depths of your heart that you are feeble, hungry, and barren? One day we will all appear before the Lord. And those of us who in in the arrogance of our heart refuse to bow the knee will be bent and laid low and shattered before the Lord. Their bows will be shattered, their food will be taken, their life will be made infertile. But those who lay in the dust, those who admit their frailty, who acknowledge their hunger and their childlessness will be rescued. Who can forget these words? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There's a story in the Gospels where the Pharisees are scoffing at Jesus as he's sharing dinner with tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus, hearing what they say, puts his fork down and looks them in the eye and he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but the sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you consider yourself to be well or sick? Are you righteous or are you a sinner? The way that you answer that question should reveal to you whether your heart is currently bowing before the Lord. Salvation history is all about this grand reversal that Hannah prays about. Where up becomes down, where black becomes white, where rich become poor, where the hungry are filled. Jesus has not come to call the righteous but sinners. He has not come to gather the mighty, the filled, the fruitful, but the feeble, the hungry, and the barren into His people. And so may we bow our hearts before the Lord. Number four. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Verses six through eight of Hannah's prayer she acknowledges what we call the sovereignty of the Lord. Listen to verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we are talking about the way that the Lord rules over His creation as King. And the truth is that there is not a corner on this globe, there is not a place or a time 
that is outside of his sovereign control and does not tick or move according to the rhythms of his divine excellencies. This universe is a grand canvas upon which God is displaying all of his beauty and glory and magnificence. In every star, in every flower, in every leaf, in the rise and fall of every king, in the birth of every child, in the death of every person, in the terrors of the stormy seas, in the peace of every summer breeze, he directs and moves and establishes and works all of creation for all time for his most supreme glory. He is in control. And so we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. Our hearts must trust Him. Why? Hannah says, because the Lord uses all of His sovereign power for our good. Look at verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. Hannah, she rejoices in this fact that the God who is sovereign uses His sovereignty for the benefit of people like her. How can we not trust that kind of Lord? The Lord who created the world and then set it like you would set a globe on your mantle. The Lord who sets planets spinning and makes them to orbit perfectly on His uh, paths that He's laid out. The Lord who says to the oceans, thus far and no further. He exercises His magnificent might for the benefit of dust people like you and me. The course of history is a long arc that bends towards the raising of the poor, the lifting up of the needy, plain and simple. We trust the Lord because we have the same faith that Abraham had, that God is a God who gives life to the dead. We believe in the sovereign, resurrecting Lord. As we look at Jesus, who was put to death on a cross, and he comes bursting out of the grave, we believe that God in his sovereignty is going to exercise that same power on our behalf on the last day. It's going to happen. And even today, we experience in our inner man as God is bringing new life, and we are seeing the old man put to death, and the new man is coming alive in Jesus Christ Our needy soul is being raised from the ash heap. Our inner man raised from the dust as we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Until one day we believe with Hannah, yes, indeed we will sit on thrones with Jesus Christ himself. And so, our hearts have to trust in the Lord. Finally, hope. In the Lord. There's a shift that takes place in verse 9. Hannah begins to speak in the future tense. 
He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. The author of Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. As Hannah prays, she says, this will happen. These things shall take place. Can you feel her heart as it hopes in the Lord? Think back to what Hannah was going through just three or four years before she prayed this prayer. She was in deep distress. She was dwelling in the valley of the shadow of death. She was eating her own tears for food. She was being vexed, oppressed in her home day after day. Where does she go? She goes to the house of the Lord. Why? Because she thought the Lord didn't care about her? Because she thought the Lord was powerless to help? Because she thought the Lord wasn't going to change things in the future? Why did she go? Hope. She came to the end of everything else in her life and the only thing she could cling to was this one thing. Hope in the Lord. As she poured out her heart to the Lord, she had hope for the wills and shalls of her life. She believed that her future belonged to the Lord and that gave her hope. Hope that barrenness would not last forever. Hope that vexation and misery were not her eternal fate. Hope that though darkness lasts for the night, joy comes with the morning. This is what it means when she says the faithful ones. In verse 9, it's to put hope That God is going to keep His covenant promises to His people. It's to believe that whatever God says will happen, will happen. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. And what is Hannah's greatest hope? She reveals it in the very end of her prayer. Verse 10. Hannah's greatest hope is in a king. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. That word anointed is the word Messiah. Or in the New Testament, Christ. Her greatest hope is in the Lord's King, the Lord's Anointed One, the Christ. If you were here last week in chapter 1, I pointed out how Hannah's prayer is really the plea of all of God's people. She says, give to your servant a son. 
And as the story of the book of Samuel begins to unfold, we're going to hear that plea from the people, and we're going to see how God begins to answer that prayer. Well, who is this king they're crying out for? Saul? Certainly not. We're going to see he's not the answer. David? Maybe. But on the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and tells the crowds, David did not ascend into the heavens. But David himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So David was obviously thinking there was some other king to come after. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Our hearts should be bursting at the seams with our hope in the great and final glory of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. For when the adversary will be shattered, for when heaven will rattle and earth will resound with the mighty footfall of the King, when the heel of the sun will obliterate the head of the serpent, when Jesus Christ will shatter Satan once and for all. It will happen, brothers and sisters. So let us hope in the Lord. It has nothing to do with saying the right words. Prayer has nothing to do with magical incantations to activate the word of faith. It has nothing to do with sprinkling the holy water of the Jordan River on your paycheck or whatever you've heard about on TV. Hannah's prayer shows us that it all starts in your heart. It starts with the heart. You have to boast in the Lord. Your heart needs to know the Lord. Your heart has to bow before the Lord. It needs to trust in the Lord. And you need to hope in the Lord. And as you fill your heart with all of these things, when you fall to your knees before the Lord... Just let them all spill out. And the prayer will take care of itself. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that our greatest desire would be, the desire of our heart would be to boast in you. We want to know you. We want to press on to know the Lord. We humble ourselves, we bow before you, and we say we are not worthy, but we do trust in you because you're a God of the poor and needy. And we do have hope, Lord Jesus, that you are our King, and that you love us, that you've laid down your life to make us yours. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.